My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion, and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death, her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life, her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honour to others, and your years to the merciless lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labours go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed and you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight, be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. 17 years ago, Steve Jobs, the co-founder of Apple, gave a commencement speech to graduating students at Stanford University. It's the all-time most-watched address of its sort, and over 40 million people have tuned in to listen to the words of wisdom of the man who founded what is now the largest tech company in the entire world. At the climax of this speech, Jobs said this, most important, have the courage to follow your heart and intuition. They somehow already know what you truly want to become. Everything else is secondary. Or how about these words from Disney's Mulan, the old one and not the remake? When will my reflection show who I am inside? There's a heart that must be free to fly. And this message, follow your heart, has so permeated our culture that former UK Health Secretary Matt Hancock thought that it might work as an excuse for why he broke lockdown regulations and ultimately his marriage to have an affair with a married woman. Asked why he broke the rules that he himself set, Hancock answered, I fell in love. It was out of my control. Now the Bible also talks about the heart as the center of our desires and our actions. Uh, but when it comes to what to do with our heart, it has a very different message. The world says, follow your heart, let it out. 
But the Bible says, guard it. If you've closed your Bibles, we're in Proverbs on page 638. And there's an outline on the back of your notice sheet which should help with where we're going. Uh, Let me read Proverbs 4 from verse 20. My son, be attentive to my words. Incline your ear to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight. Keep them within your heart. For they are life to those who find them and healing to all their flesh. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Above all else, Proverbs says, guard your heart. We heard last week that the first nine chapters of Proverbs are a king training his son in wisdom. Wisdom to understand the world, wisdom to read the room so that he could make decisions that please God. And it's because being wise is about making decisions that the heart is just so important. You see, we're led by our hearts. Where the heart decides to go, we go. I think Disney's right on that. And it's precisely because it is so important that we are warned to look after it. Verse 23. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. The heart is our control center. It's like the bridge of a ship. If you've seen the film Captain Phillips about a crew of Somali pirates hijacking a cargo ship, you know just about as much about piracy as I do. Uh, But it seems to me like when pirates board a ship, their main target is the bridge, the control center. Because if they've got that, they've got control. And similarly, if somebody wanted to take control of you, to lead you off the path of wisdom, of course they would target your heart. Once they had your heart, the rest would just follow. So the heart needs guarding. And that's why in Proverbs chapter five, the king introduces his son to the greatest threat to his heart. We can see from verse 18 in this passage that the young prince is married. And quite understandably, the threat that his father warns him of is another woman. Let's call her the heart stealer. The heart stealer. Look down with me at chapter 5, verse 1. My son, be attentive to my wisdom. Incline your ear to my understanding, that you may keep discretion and your lips may guard knowledge. For the lips of a forbidden woman drip honey and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path of shale. You see, rather than knowledge or words of wisdom, this woman's lips drip honey. She's a seductress, speaking the sweetest of words. She's enticing, flattering. Her speech is smoother than oil. She knows all the right words to make this young prince happy, to make him feel good. And her aim with this sweet talk, this flattery, her aim is to get him into bed, 
to steal his heart. Now, this isn't the Bible being anti-sex or anti-woman, as if the wise life is some sort of monk-like existence and women are just a distraction from the books that are the real center of life. No, the Bible is wonderfully positive about sex. It's a gift from God. Uh, But the Bible is very clear that God's design is for sex to be enjoyed within the security and permanence of marriage. You see, sex is good, but the Bible would call sex, outside of these loving boundaries, sexual immorality, the misuse of a good gift. So the problem with this forbidden woman is that they aren't married. He's married to another woman, and if you read on in Proverbs, this forbidden woman, she's married too. And the king wants to warn his son of the bitter end that comes from going down that road. Yes, she speaks sweetly, but in the end, she is bitter. Her sweet words will turn sharp. We've heard already in Proverbs that the path of wisdom leads to life and peace. But the path that she is on leads only to death. And if she steals this son's heart, if she entices him with her sweet lips and her flattering talk, he will go down with her to death. This passage is at the very least a warning against adultery. But I think there's a little bit more going on too. If you look at the footnotes on verse three, uh, forbidden woman is more literally strange woman, strangers in stranger. And adulteress, down in verse 20, is more literally foreign woman. Uh, This heart stealer, she is a foreign woman. And for an Israelite, the problem with foreigners was that they didn't worship Yahweh, the God of the Bible. You see, they worshiped other gods. And God warned Israel not to marry foreigners who might lead them to worship idols other than the one true God. Throughout the Bible, idolatry and sexual immorality are tied together. If you had to pick the one thing that leads people away from worshiping God, it is sexual sin. You may well have seen this happen in the lives of people that you know in the church. And it makes sense that they're linked because sex and marriage was designed by God to give us a picture of the relationship between him and his people. God promises us life and relationship with him. He is the God of the universe and we are promised relationship with him. To turn away from him, to turn to other gods, that is just like committing adultery. And the reason that the prince needs to guard his heart against this heart stealer is that ultimately she will lead him away from worshiping God. If anything could lead a wise and God-fearing king into throwing it all away, it is an attractive foreign woman. It's no surprise that this is the, this is the image that the father uses to warn his son of this danger. Adultery with her will lead him into betraying God. And since the God of the Bible is the only God who can give life, turning away quite rightly, only leads to death. I don't think any of us here are kings unless someone's in very deep cover. 
but as Christians seeking to live wise lives, we need to guard our hearts against being stolen. And in particular, we need to realize the danger that sexual immorality poses to our relationship with God. Now, we're all sexual sinners. None of us are blameless in this. All of us depend on the grace and forgiveness of the Lord Jesus. If this is something you're particularly struggling with at the moment, can I encourage you to talk to someone, perhaps a trusted Christian friend or a small group leader, perhaps pray together and ask for God's help. Because God does want to help us to live for him. And I think that's what we see in the rest of this passage. The rest of this passage is the king giving us two instructions to help us. Two exhortations that he wants to be ringing in our ears as we seek to live the wise life. Uh, We're at point two on our handout, if you're following on there. How to stay married. How to stay married. Let me read verse seven. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house. Proverbs very clearly recognizes the son's agency in all of this. The son is not a helpless victim. Yes, this woman is enticing, we can tell that from the description, but he can put steps in place to avoid temptation. He knows where he lives, but he doesn't have to go there. He can steer well clear. Or to use the language that Paul uses in 1 Corinthians, he can flee sexual immorality. Whether we're married or single, male or female, we will all face temptation to sexual immorality. It might be in the form of a person, a colleague perhaps. It might be online, that website that you know that you shouldn't be looking at. And faced with this temptation, we need to realize the danger of having our hearts stolen. We can't just look at the face of temptation and hope that we are going to be okay. We need to ask ourselves what it looks like to flee, to take steps to guard our heart. And one of those steps will be filling our hearts with God's wise words. I like those found in verses 8 to 14. The heart stealer lies to us about the dangers. She says it's all going to be okay, that there's no problem with sexual sin, that it'll never be discovered. Uh, But these wise words in these verses, uh, they're wise words to help us see the world as it really is, to help us see the tragic consequences of of adultery. Uh, The king is arming us with words to remind ourselves of when temptation comes. Let me read those words from verse eight. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. And at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voice of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. Even though some of this imagery isn't our day-to-day experience, 
I think the despair is really clear. This man, this adulterer, has wrecked his marriage. He has wrecked his life. And when we're faced with temptation, we need to take the long view that this passage offers. What we do in darkness will not stay in darkness forever. It will one day be brought into the light. Look down at verse 21. For a man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. You see, sin promises so much, but in the end, it will bind us and kill us. Chapter 5, verse 22. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him, and he is held fast in the cords of his sin. He dies for lack of discipline, and because of his great folly, he is led astray. To stay married, and ultimately for all of us to stay married to God, we need to flee sexual immorality. But as well as this bleak picture of sexual immorality and its tragic consequences, I think there's an alternative picture in verses 15 to 20. I've summed up the heart of this picture on the handout with this. Rejoice in faithfulness. Rejoice in faithfulness. I'm going to read these words, these encouraging words from verse 15. Again, it's written in a poetic style, which I don't think we're used to. But I hope again that we can hear the goodness of this picture. Verse 15. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely dear, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? Rejoice in the wife of your youth. That's the encouragement here. This is a beautiful picture of faithfulness in marriage. The king is telling his son to enjoy life with his wife. Now it's hot at the moment, it's very hot, even in here. Uh, So I'm sure we've all come to appreciate uh, the goodness of water. And just so, their marriage is described like cool, refreshing water, giving life and quenching thirst. The son, the father's encouraging him to see his marriage like water. Of course you shouldn't throw it out in the streets. That would be crazy. It's precious to be kept, to be enjoyed, to sustain you. He should see his wife like water and his wife like wine, rejoicing in her beauty and in the love that they share, getting drunk on her love and not the love of another. The whole point is that he should be so single-mindedly, overwhelmingly rejoicing in her that the heart stealer loses her appeal. A professor of mine once spent about half a lecture telling us how his experiments in voles conclusively proved that humans just aren't designed for monogamy. It's just not natural to be faithful, he said. It was actually about hormones, I'm not quite sure why. 
Um, but he's married. And I wondered at the time what his wife would have thought of that lecture. Sex involves deep intimacy, vulnerability. It needs the security and trust that the faithfulness of marriage provides. The devil, he wants us to see faithfulness in marriage, in relationship with God, in worship, as constrictive. Because seeing it as constrictive will lead us vulnerable to having our hearts stolen. But this is a call to rejoice in faithfulness. This passage is speaking into an area where there'll be lots of pain. We live in a world which is broken in so many ways, including in the areas of sex, of relationships, of marriage. If that's your experience, please don't take these verses as a standard to meet. They're meant to help us. They're meant to show us the goodness of faithfulness rather than to beat up the struggling. And with that in mind, let me encourage us to rejoice in faithfulness, just like this passage is encouraging us to. To rejoice in faithfulness. For those of us who are married, rejoice in your marriage. Rejoice in your spouse. Make sure that you're taking time to appreciate them, to enjoy their company. Take time to think about what you love about being married to them. Rejoice in the faithfulness that marriage gives you. And for all of us, married or single, we should rejoice in our relationship with the Lord. Everyone here today who calls themselves a follower of Jesus has been welcomed into a permanent relationship with the God who overflows with love. A love that we have so clearly seen in the death of the Lord Jesus to save us. We do not deserve it, but the God who made absolutely everything has made it so that we cannot lose his overwhelming love. God has married us. It's a strange image, but God has married us. A marriage here that some of us experience is just a scale model of that relationship that we will all experience in full, that relationship that we will all enjoy forever. Listen to these beautiful words from Isaiah 54, where God, our husband, says this. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. His love for us is more enduring than the mountains you might see on your country walk or the hills you might struggle to climb over that just seem so permanent. There is so much more like this in the Bible to encourage us to rejoice in faithfulness, faithfulness in marriage and in faithfulness in the relationship with the God to which it points. The more that we rejoice in these relationships with God and with our spouse, the more resilient we will be when the heart stealer comes and the more chance that we will have of resisting temptation, temptation to adultery, to sexual immorality, to idolatry, ultimately. Ultimately, this will help us to resist turning our backs on God. Proverbs is giving us these words because it wants to help us stay married. So how did this prince do? We've heard this week, uh, last week, uh, that Proverbs isn't isolated from the rest of the Bible story. 
We're meant to imagine that this is King David training his son Solomon in wisdom. When he says, here, O son, we're meant to imagine David scooping up Solomon in his arms and saying, well, maybe not his arms, he's married, um, but saying, here is some wisdom to keep you going. Did Solomon listen to his father's wisdom? If you know your Bible, you'll know the answer is no. Solomon, as wise as he was, married many wives, including foreign women. And just like this passage predicts, his heart was stolen. Uh, you'll find in your handout at the bottom, 1 Kings 11, verse 4. Let me read it. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David, his father. And we're meant to read Proverbs aware of Solomon's tragic failure, which makes this warning all the more solemn. The lure of sexual immorality, of adultery, caused even wise King Solomon to go astray. It didn't end with women, it ended with him turning his back on the Lord. Solomon's failure is a real reminder that our hearts are so prone to straying in this way. We need help if we have any hope of living God's way. We need the transforming power of his Holy Spirit. We need his strength to fight temptation. And we need forgiveness when we stumble. But most of all, Proverbs is reminding us of our need for a truly faithful king. Proverbs reminded Israel of Solomon's failure, ultimately to make them cry out for a wise king who would choose wisdom, who would choose faithfulness, ultimately, and would stick with God. And this is exactly what we see in the Lord Jesus, as we've been thinking about in the rest of this meeting. Jesus was always faithful to his father. Where we fail, where Solomon failed, where all of the kings that we have ever seen fail, Jesus is faithful. He is uniquely deserving of life and relationship with his father. And we have those things only because of his faithfulness. Jesus' faithfulness is the grounds of our acceptance. And wonderfully, he is faithful to us too. He has set his love on us and his heart can never be stolen away. Which I think is all the more reason for us to hear Proverbs call to guard our own hearts. Proverbs call to faithfulness. So in that light, let me pray for God's help. Father, thank you that you know our hearts, that you know how prone we are to wonder. And thank you most of all for Jesus and his faithfulness to you and to us. Please help us to guard our hearts against anything that might threaten our relationship with you. This is a, somebody who's trying to think about um, putting uh, what we've heard in context a little bit, and they've asked, with a book such as Proverbs, it's, it could be easy to focus on one or two verses and take them out of context. How do we help ourselves as we read through Proverbs not to do that, do you think? Oh, I hope I haven't taken any verses out of context. Um, I do think they are implying that you have done that. I think they're saying that that could happen. So how do we help ourselves to read it responsibly, I suppose? You've given us some of that in the talk, but yeah. maybe summarise. I think um, 
recognizing the fact that Proverbs does fit into the whole story of the Bible. Proverbs isn't going to be saying something totally new uh, that nothing else in the Bible even kind of shone a light on. Um, it's more focusing and sharpening um, what we've seen in the past, picking up the Bible story. I think, I think a really good place to start is to familiarize yourself with the story of the Bible. There are lots of Bible overviews out there that you can get your hands on. Uh, God's Big Picture by Vaughan Roberts is, is excellent. I think Campbell's written a course too, um, which I'm sure he'll give you if he asks. But once you have that whole um, story of the Bible in mind, um, it is much easier to spot things that might be going totally off piste. Um, and it's much easier if people up here say something that might be going off totally off piste uh, to spot that. I think also reading whole books rather than just reading individual passages. Here at St. Helens, we try to preach through whole books of the Bible because um, the Bible's given to us in books rather than as individual passages. So the best guard uh, against taking a passage completely out of context is to read the context too. Uh, Proverbs is quite hard to, to read all in one go. Uh, one of the other preachers here sat down and did it and it took him almost an entire day. But to break it up into little chunks, Proverbs 1 to 9 is quite easily readable in one sitting. And, and reading the whole of that will help kind of steer you, I think. But if you have any more specific questions about stuff that might be out of context, catch me or Campbell afterwards. Mm -hmm. And it's worth saying that this is, this, is, this is an art as much as a science, and we are always, sure. as we are preaching, trying to think carefully about not taking things out of context, but we don't always get it right. Talk to us afterwards. Keep the questions coming in. Do hand them to the stewards and, and pass them to us uh, as we're going. Somebody's asking... Um, uh, how does this passage apply to women? Is it uh, any different? You focused on the, uh, the, the speaker as the man. Is there any difference if it's a woman? Yeah, I think, I think I, 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 it's, it's really important to make it clear that um, this is, the Bible isn't saying that men are uniquely prone to temptation in this sort of area or that women are some sort of like temptress or something like that. That's absolutely not what the Bible's saying. Um, the reason that... Um, this is a, a woman in Proverbs, is because uh, Proverbs is a, is a story, it has a structure, and, and we're meant to imagine the main character is a king. And so it makes sense that uh, the person who's going to lure him off track is a, is a, is a beautiful woman. Um, I guess it, it wouldn't make sense the other way. And um, so I think, I think the application to people who aren't kings in any way is, is, is along the same lines. So I think the the warning against sexual morality is true for all of us. And ultimately, when we look forward to the relationship that every Christian has with, with the Lord, uh, that's the real relationship that you don't want to get your heart stolen from, whether you're a man or a woman, whether you're married or single. So I really don't want, you don't, Proverbs gives it to us in the context of, of marriage. So we want to do our best to, to tie these two, two things together when we're reading Proverbs. But in the story of the whole Bible, um, the thing that marriage points to is our relationship with um, our relationship with God. So that's the one, whether you're a man or a woman, that you don't want to get your heart stolen in. There's a couple of questions about um, kind of the focus on sexual immorality mm -hmm. here. Somebody's asking, is that is that because that's Solomon's big problem, or is there something particular about that that we need to hear? I think it is it is Solomon's big problem. I think it's a it's a mighty big coincidence if. Um, if it's not important, and basically almost all of the characters in the Old Testament fail on, on this respect, uh, it is the thing that knocks kings down. Um, there is, if you read through the story of the Bible, there is a, a lot of people um, sinning in this sort of way. 
so I think it's, it's not a problem that's unique to Solomon. Um, I think, what was the question exactly? Um, was it Solomon's just big, Solomon's big problem? I think, I think it, it is true that sexual immorality is, is really closely linked to idolatry in the Bible. If you look at uh, Exodus, um, Moses goes up the mountain to get God's, to get God's law, and uh, while they're gone, uh, while he's gone, Israel, straight away, just after they've been rescued, they've been rescued by God, turns to worshipping an idol. But that also comes together with something that's quite uh, clearly sexual immorality amongst, amongst the congregation. That happens at kind of lots of key points throughout the Bible. Um, so look up the story of the golden calf in Exodus, uh, the warnings about Israel going into the land, uh, all about don't marry foreign women, I think particularly for this reason. And you see that picked up in the New Testament as well. Um, Jesus in Matthew 19, I think, uh, links... Uh, not divorcing wives with the idea that God is divorcing Israel, as in because marriage is a picture of our relationship with God, there is a lot of crossover between turning away from God and turning away from our spouse. Mm -hmm. So in other words, sexual morality is often used as a picture of the ways in which we go astray from God more generally, but often that is literally what people do when they go astray from God as well. Yeah, and I, I think if this is, this might be too bold. Certainly in, in my experience, often one of the things that causes people to turn their back on God or what the Bible says is because of a desire to, uh, I mean, ultimately sleep with a girlfriend. That's a, that's a, a thing lots of people see. I think it, it is more than, if it is a picture, it's a picture that is true in our biology too. Yes. Um, it's true in our experience as well. And just to kind of go a bit further with that, somebody say, well, <laughs> if Solomon was the wisest king that there was, how did he fall for this? You know, how did he end up committing adultery and marrying many foreign wives and that kind of thing? I think that is exactly the question that Proverbs is, is, is reflecting on. Um, even in the story in 1 Kings, um, that sin is there basically right from the start of Solomon's reign. Um, and ultimately, we see it destroying him, destroying other monarchs throughout, uh, throughout Israel's history. Uh, I think Solomon isn't the wisest man that ever lived. I'm sorry, I, I, as in it's a wonderful bit of Bible trivia, and it is it's true, but Jesus was, is the wisest man who has ever lived and who still lives. And, and that gap that we see between Jesus and Solomon is exactly the thing that makes us appreciate Jesus so much. Mm-hmm. Um, somebody asking, uh, what about if we're single? So a lot of what you're saying about adultery, of course, applies to uh, people who are married. But if we're single, what does it look like to keep your, all your heart with vigilance? So I think I don't want to completely divorce it from, from kind of literal sexual immorality. I think there are, there are lots of things to say about... Um, about guarding our hearts against being stolen from relationship with God. I think, I think it, it looks like seeing the damage that sexual sin does in lives. Um, I think there are lots of places in the Bible you could go to look at that. I think it would look like um, filling your heart with, with God's teaching that sex within marriage is, is the right and proper place for it, to the extent that we appreciate that that is a good thing rather than a constricting thing. I think God would want us to, to, to see the goodness of that 
Um, because as in single people are, are tempted sexually too, as in, as in I don't think that's a controversial thing to say. Um, it will just look different to um, what it would look like for married people. Um, as in pornography is a huge problem. I, the statistics even in churches are huge. And I, I think keeping our heart with all vigilance is just watching out for that, watching out for the fact that um, all of our hearts are prone to wonder, not just from God, but from the pattern that he has laid out for us, which is that sex is for marriage, and uh, that is a good thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, somebody picking up on a, on a different detail, um, mm-hmm. which is in chapter 4, verse um, 22, uh, that the words, be attentive to my words, um, he says, for they are life to those who find them, and healing to all their flesh. What, what does he mean by that? Does he mean that if you are wise, um, then you, you know that will actually keep you in good health in some kind of way, or is he talking metaphorically there? Um, my ultimate instinct is going to be he's speaking metaphorically because, ultimately, on a day-to-day basis, I think it, it's hard to remind ourselves that God really is all-powerful and really really is the creator of all things and really can heal. I think um, I, I would lean towards this being a sort of a, um, not a metaphorical healing, but a real but non-physical healing, I think. Um, I think in the Old Testament, you'll see uh, life and blessing um, tied to obeying God. So Solomon asked for wisdom and he got long life. Um, that, wasn't a, that isn't a metaphor. I think he literally just lived for a very long time. Um, and through the Bible, through the Old Testament, when we see God's blessing, that often manifested itself in physical ways. Uh, but I think when Jesus comes along, he wants, to, uh, he wants us to recognize that that physical healing there was a picture of ultimate healing, that healing that we all need, mm-hmm. um, the healing of our relationship with God, of our bodies kind of broken by sin. Um, we might not enjoy healing now, uh, but ultimately the Christian hope is of a world without sickness, without disease, uh, without sin. That's not an imaginary world. It's real and physical. Um, but God doesn't promise to heal us here, I think. And if we, in Proverbs, he's using lots and lots of pictures and metaphors, isn't he, to, to describe making good decisions, yeah. isn't he? So in the next verse, he says... Um, uh, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow springs of life. But as you read on, you see, verse 27, what he's talking about is good and evil, making decisions about good and evil. So quite often writers of this sort of um, material in the Bible will use images like life and water and springs, but what they're really talking about is wisdom and making good decisions and not stupid decisions and not evil and that kind of thing. And we need to realise that the things that it's promising are at least as good as those physical things. Like, you know, we all appreciate water. God's using that image because what he's promising is far better than that. Mm-hmm. Um, a couple of questions about uh, application just to uh, finish with. So um, somebody's asking, well, you know, can you give us a little bit more um, on what it will look like to rejoice uh, in Jesus from this? How do we encourage each other? How do we guard our hearts? Um, there's a sort of a, a few different things mm-hmm. to think about with the, with the follow-up. Um, an application there. How do, we, how do we help one another, guard one another, and look to Jesus in all of this? Yeah. Uh, so I think 
I think if you look at Proverbs chapter four and verse, um, where is it? Um, yeah, verse 21, or 20 and 21. Be attentive to my words, incline your ears to my sayings. Let them not escape from your sight and keep them within your heart. Uh, the image is that our heart, is gonna be, our heart could be stolen, uh, but one of the best defenses against that is filling it with something else. Um, so I think God would want us to, um, to remind ourselves daily of his faithfulness, to thank him for it, fill our hearts with, um, with the words, the, the promises that God makes about his, about his faithfulness. I think, um, yeah, yeah to, to fill our hearts with those things, that, that might look like um, really looking out for that when you're, when you're reading through a book of the Bible. It might look like uh, when people are particularly struggling, sharing those words. But I think in particular, um, when we come across those words, uh, making a point of remembering them, because the whole point of guarding is you do it in advance, you can't really do it during a break-in. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think we're, we're not very sensitive to the relational language that the Bible uses, because either we find it awkward or we find it pretty far off. Uh, but I wonder whether day-to-day, uh, many of us actually struggle to think of ourselves as in, a, as in a real relationship with God. And I think the Bible, like, God understands that. He understands that, you know, it's, it's quite hard to have a relationship with somebody you can't see. Um, but that's why he speaks to us in his word. And I think that is, that is the main method I would, I would go for. Mm-hmm. Um, and this may be, these sorts of questions may be great things to talk about a little bit over refreshments as we go across the road as well. There's one or two more questions that people have asked about kind of, practical application, which I think we probably don't quite have time for, but they, why don't you ask them for somebody over coffee or a, um, a plate of chicken nuggets or whatever it is, and have a think through together about what it might look like to guard ourselves in these sorts of ways. That would be a great question to follow up on. Matthew, thank you so much for taking us through that and answering questions.